Didn't come to make a fuss or pick a fight. Just want you to tell me if you think you can, baby. Can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and the movies that go along with the novels in the order of publication. Um, if you have, uh, if you're tuning into this, um, please note that this is the second of a two-part review of um, Mick Garris's 1994 ABC television miniseries, The Stand. Uh, the review... Uh, I, I recorded it as one long episode. It was too long to upload, so what I did, I just split it in half. I released it on the same day. So if you're listening to this, this is the second part. Make sure that you go back and listen to the first part. And with that said, continue listening. And then we have part three, um, which opens with Stu's failed attempt at an appendectomy. Um, just as in the book, it shows the realities of this new world. And we see that Stu's group has now been joined by Dana Jurgens and Judge Ferris. Now, that's a departure from the book, as the judge was a member of Larry's group. I don't think this is a wise decision, because Judge and Glenn, in my estimation, are too similar of characters to be in the same group. Stu and Franny, meanwhile, are making goo-goo eyes at each other, and Franny drops the bomb about her pregnancy. Um, this is not a deal-breaker for Mr. Stuart Redman. Um, they stare longingly into each other's eyes and then have fully clothed network television lovemaking while Harold pouts about like an angry Muppet. Flag's minions then start cleaning up Vegas, and the trash can man meets Lloyd and the Rat Man. Remember the Rat Man? I mean, he's barely a character in the novels, popping up really only at the very end, but King must have gotten a kick out of him, or else he wouldn't have seated him in the very first episode. Um, and, I, and I'm not being facetious, I really like the, the Rat Man character. Now, they go uh, take trash to meet Flag. Um, and then Flag gives trash his own stone, just like the one he had given to Lloyd. And I love that when the characters, um, Trash Can Man here and Lloyd before, when they reach for the stone, he holds their hands for just a minute, stopping them, slowing the moment down to offer them a specific choice. And then Stu's gang makes it to Boulder. Um, and this was not a scene from the book. By the time the reader had gotten to Boulder, we experienced it through Larry's eyes. The other characters have gotten there first. Nadine then has another steamy dream about the Dark Man and wakes up to a steamy reality riding shotgun with Stephen King as they make their way to Boulder. A caravan of vehicles make their way to Mother Abigail and we realize that Larry had already arrived to town as he and Stu are apparently hanging out. Now in the novel, King knew that even though we knew the characters, the characters didn't really know each other and they wouldn't necessarily just hang out with each other. In fact, Stu was immediately and initially mistrustful of Larry um, but in the movie, they're, they're just hanging out because it's just shorthand. I mean, these are our good guys, so it just makes sense for our good guys to hang out. But I, I like the those little details in the book. In the book, um, they do all begin to develop bonds with each other once the committee forms. Um, but here, it just looks like the, the members of our three main groups are intermingling with each other like they've been best friends with for years. Now that everyone is best friends and the power's on, it's time to have their first town meeting. Uh, and just as in the book, Stu is the moderator, and everyone starts singing the national anthem. Franny starts um, and is soon followed painfully by Larry, 
the actual singer. And I never realized that that Molly Ringwald had a voice and just how little of a voice um, uh, Adam Stork uh, has. Um, I, I just think that this probably should be a moment where Larry shines and is completely outshone by Molly Ringwald here. I mean, regardless, just like it is in the book, it's a nice celebratory moment. And Mother Abigail, meanwhile, just hightails it out of town. Um, Mick Garris, meanwhile, makes an appearance in the crowd. Um, one by one, Stu reads the names of the proposed members of the Free Zone Committee. And what cracks me up, during this meeting, everyone just keeps asking Glenn questions. Where's Mother Abigail? Where's Lucy and Joe? And Glenn, the entire time, is just... He's treating everybody respectfully, but you can tell he just cares less. Uh, what they fail to do here... Uh, to convey is the political intrigue of forming the committee and bringing it to a vote. They have worked shrewdly in the book in order to plan exactly how to get themselves elected so that when Harold proposes, they should all be voted in at once. It's a great moment that shows how smart Harold is, how much of a relief it is to the committee, how accepted they are by the community. Now, we do not get any of that here. We never see a pre-meeting. We never see the weight of the responsibility of being on this committee. We never see Stu take advice from Glenn on how to navigate the politics and how quickly he adapts to the life of a politician. All of that is missing. So there's no tension in the scene when it comes to vote. And Harold's proposal lands with no weight. And then Lucy busts in with the announcement that Mother Abigail is gone. The committee meets, and then Nick proposes the idea of spies. Larry, on his way home, is approached by Nadine. Um, and I'll talk more about this scene later, but the shorthand is it doesn't work. It just does not work for a variety of reasons. Um... The actress playing Lucy, however, conveys the vulnerable heartbreak as she thinks that Larry has returned to just grab his things and go. The committee meets for a barbecue to discuss the topic of sending spies. While Glenn and Susan discuss the importance of the committee um, and, you know, just act like adults, Larry cracks jokes about reinventing the CIA, um, how Boulder is hell because he's a politician. Now, again, I don't know exactly where they went wrong with this character, but he's, he's not Larry Underwood. You know, he votes in someone like a wise-ass, then starts complaining when he realizes that people are taking this seriously. You know, he gets chewed out by Stu and then makes another crack. So nothing about this character has been serious, and that's a problem. There's no reason why he should have been elected. In the novel, King took pains to demonstrate his reluctant leadership and his constant concern of keeping his group safe. Here, we never saw any of that leadership. We never saw him lead a group to Boulder. There was never a weight of responsibility. Later, the gang goes to hypnotize Tom. Again, Bill Fagerbake nails the scene. And just like in the book, it's so sad to watch. I mean, hearing Tom call himself an idiot and repeat the reason why they're sending him west, it's just, it's hard to watch. You know, and Larry doesn't contribute anything except tell Stu to wake him up because he can't take it. Oh, hashtag Larry sucks. And though things are looking up in Boulder, Garrus reminds us that it's still uh, a harsh new world that they're living in. We're given a scene with Harold and the cleanup crew, a gruesome moment in which they discover the remains of the churchgoers who've rotted from the summer heat. Harold, however, uh, doesn't have the worst day as he comes home to find Nadine, and the seduction of Harold Lauder begins. Larry approaches the judge, and just like in the book, the judge knows why Larry has come to him and accepts. And Ozzie Davis just nails this character. And I, just like in the book, I wish that we had more scenes with him. 
Nick and Stu drive Tom out to the edge of town where he'll have to head out on his own. And it's devastating knowing that when Nick and Tom say goodbye to each other, it's for good. Franny checks in with our new doctor, played by Warren Frost, who anyone who knows anything about Twin Peaks will recognize that Mr. Frost is simply channeling the warm warmth of Doc Hayward. Harold has a prophetic dream of fire and destruction and a very, very cheesy interaction with a dead man. That's just one of those Stephen King traits that just doesn't work in live action. You know, a dead man saying, you're a real card, huh? It's, it's just hokey, you know. And then Flag shows Harold how he should blow up the committee. We see the uh, Air Force base scene in Las Vegas, and we know that we aren't supposed to like these guys because they're mean to Tom, and one of them has leather straps around his biceps. You know, and this is a major problem with the version of Las Vegas depicted in the movie. It completely simplifies the complexity of the novel. Now, in the novel, the people of Las Vegas weren't evil. They weren't drawn to Las Vegas because they were evil and they sensed evil, you know, they were just too weak to resist the temptation of flag, um, or they needed structure. They needed that, you know, that feeling of safety. That they knew that if they went there, they would be taken care of. That there would be a structure for them that would guarantee safety. And yeah, some of the Las Vegas folks are represented by the worst of humanity, you know, in in the book um, and here. But in this movie, that's all that we get. Okay. And then we get this scene with Harold and Nadine that is so over the top, I can't help but love it. I mean, it's it's not great in the sense um, that it renders Harold's dilemma cartoonish, but um, in its place, he just becomes this mustache-twirling supervillain. It is so goofy. Um, it's one of my favorite parts of, of the, the eight hours that we had. So yes, in a movie about the life and death of the entire world, this is happening. Harold. 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 What the hell are you doing? Don't screw with my disco, Nadine. Mother Abigail returns, um, and in case we couldn't tell, Mick Garris is there to tell us that she's come back! Harold and Nadine, dressed as T uh, Tobias Funke in his Leather Daddy outfit, by the way, uh, puts Nadine in her place by telling her to shut her yap. And then, oh my god, I mean, in what should be the most intense scene of the miniseries, comes across like a Bill Dozier's Batman episode. I mean, the only thing missing from the quick cuts to each of the committee's members' faces is the Dutch tilt. It's supposed to invoke, invoke immediacy, but that's not how it comes across. Harold's declaration literally falls on deaf ears, which is a good touch. All right. Now, I have issues with the way that Nick dies, kind of. Um, kind of. Uh, because one, it's a meaningless death. And that's the point. It just shows that everything that the community has been working on really is not what they should have been working on. But at the same time, it's a strong character, and, and part of me just kind of wishes that he received a different death. But the fact that Harold is talking through a walkie-talkie and saying that this is Harold Lauder 
Nick can't hear it. Literally falls on deaf ears. It's awesome. Um, another great touch here is the actual explosion. It is framed beautifully, and you can feel the impact even if you can't feel the tension in the moment leading up to it. And just like that, Nick is gone. And Mother Abigail returns only to die soon after the surviving committee members, Sands, Fran, um, get ready to head west. Larry says goodbye to Lucy and Joe, and I realized that I had completely forgotten about Joe in this movie. It's reasons like this why I feel like you shouldn't adapt it beat for beat if it means that you're going to try and cram everything in. I know, Jesus, Larry's bringing his guitar. I mean, did anybody ask him to bring it? I, I Didn't Mother Abigail say, just take what you have? Uh, I mean, he... He's that sure that he wants, that they want to hear him sing by a campfire. I mean, he's that guy in your freshman year of college who just shows up and decides for everyone that the party music will be a one-man live show. Part four, The Stand. It opens with Harold crashing. I mean, and I really want to give props to the stunt crew because it's an awesome stunt that sends the stuntman absolutely soaring. And elsewhere, Stu senses the crash and Harold lies on the bottom of a gully, his body broken. And in case we weren't sure what was wrong with Harold, you know, from the fact that his face is a bloody mess and can't move, he tells Nain, you know, Nadine specifically, you know, and rather painlessly that his ribs and leg are broken. The judge, meanwhile, is executed, and his boneheaded murderer is taken out by Flag. Uh, before, though, we see the work of Flag's executions. Nice little cameo from director Sam Raimi, by the way. And what's an incredibly harrowing scene in the book is devoid of any tension. And Flagg's humor just doesn't play well. Now, at this point in the story in the book, Flagg is on a downward spiral. Here, he starts off as his typical goofy persona that's later taken over by Wrath. Now, in the book at this point, we're seeing less and less of that goofiness and just more and more of just the, the darkness. Dana and Flagg have their moment. Flagg is charming, and Dana sees right through it. When Flag can't get the info about the third spy, Flag transforms into a demon face, and then Dana kills herself. I mean, and then Flag just shouts unconvincingly at the sky. I don't buy it. I'm gonna play it here. Tell me what you think. No! Harold gets his gun and puts himself out of his misery. Somehow Stu knows. Um, Stu doesn't know how he knows, but he knows nonetheless. Um, now, rather by encountering his body on the street, as it does in the books, uh, magic tells them. Nadine's Vespa runs out of gas, so she has to start walking. And meanwhile, Trash flips out and drives off after blowing up the hangar, which doesn't really seem like a big deal, really. Nadine wanders into the desert where she discovers her destined lover, who strolls out of the fire. They start making out, and the devil face comes back. Now, I guess it makes sense. You know, in the novel, the coupling with Flag drives her insane. Um, and King is able to bring about just the the, re, just the the awful sensation that go along with it. I think there is a transformation as well, as he kind of transforms into this, like, shaggy thing. Um, but, I mean, he, he's able to go into detail here in the book that can't be done in a movie. So... You know, I mean, Mick Garris has to do it visually. Um, the problem is that the devil face just kind of looks goofy, um, and I just can't get past the goofiness. Um, but my favorite thing in this movie is Randall Flagg singing Baby Can You Dig Your Man. Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Tell me, baby, can you dig your man? And as he sings it to, to Nadine mockingly, watch it and tell me he doesn't look like McConaughey. 
you know, I can definitely see McConaughey doing the same thing. You know, flag playing with Nadine's ear, um, sorry, Nadine uh, in her near comatose state is wonderful stuff. You know, now Sheridan channels flag's dark mirth here, giggling and having a blast. And because the first two times work so well, not really, tra uh, flag transforms into a demon face and has a temper tantrum. It's a thoroughly goofy scene. You know, Sheridan lumbers around like Frankenstein because he can't move his neck from the amount of makeup caking his head. Nadine mocks Flag and hurls herself um, from the balcony. And after that, it's the goddamn devil face again. Trash Can Man finds his nuke. And now comes the time for Stu's fall. One by one, they go down the ravine. Because the descent was so jovial, it makes the ascent that much more unexpected. Stu falls and breaks his leg. Baby Larry has a conniption fit and Stu tells him it's okay. And as you can tell, my patience for the movie is, is wearing thin at this point. Glenn says goodbye, and because of the fine work between the two actors, they're able to drum up the necessary emotion for the scene. And I like the way that Stu watches them go. They just give a wave and soon disappear over the ridge. Soon after, Larry and Glenn and Ralph are intercepted by the bad guys, and Larry is so obnoxious it's unbelievable. What worked about this scene in the book was how human it was. Both sides almost didn't know what to do when they encountered each other. Both realized that... Um, you know, it, it didn't matter what represented, you know, what side at that particular moment. They were both just doing their jobs. Um, Glenn's hit in the face, and Larry delivers the timely reference of Rodney King Humanitarian Award of the Day. While in jail, Flag makes an excellent introduction. After stomping on Glenn's pet cockroach, the camera pans up from his boot all the way up to his smiling face. Flag pulls a play out of his colleague, Leland Gaunt's playbook, offering to take away Glenn's arthritis. Flag loses his patience here and then orders Lloyd to shoot Glenn. Again, in the book, it's a tense scene built on Flag's rage and the horrible knowledge that Glenn's about to die. Um, regardless, when given the opportunity, um, Lloyd still uh, chooses loyalty to, to Flag. It's a good scene, um, but I just think that in comparison to the, the book, the, the book is better. Stu gets a vision of Mother Abigail, who in death gives him the strength to just keep on, keeping on, really. He crawls up the embankment, and just when he can't make it any further, is rescued by Tom, who was told to double back by Nick. Larry and Ralph are brought to their public execution. We see the Las Vegas City streets, and I hope that in the upcoming four-part cinematic version, we get to see the real Las Vegas, you know, the main strip with the more famous hotels. Now, we don't get any of that, um... But anyway, when Larry and Ralph are, are, are pulled from their armored van, Ratman takes the opportunity to smash Larry's acoustic car and pronounces that disco is dead. You know, and I think that uh, the Ratman might be a little confused about the musical stylings of disco. The scene itself, even though it isn't the, the main Vegas strip, is, is nicely done. You know, Vegas is fully on display here. We get great shots of a crowd that uh, is ready for their entertainment, and Flag descends before the masses like the rock star he thinks that he is. Mick Garris um, has also adorned the streets with Flag's banners, which was not seen uh, in the novel. While Larry and Ralph are strung up to be drawn and quartered, Flag reads the proclamation and the crowd cheers until Principal DeWitt from Growing Pains interrupts. Flag calls him out. And what does not work for me, which I get, okay, Flag is treating this like a rock star, um, so it makes sense that he's speaking into a microphone, but it's a bit too, I don't know, stand-up comedic. 
and then Flag ooh, just shoots early 90s special effects um, out of his hands, which kills DeWitt. Um, and then, I don't know, I mean, the, the conclusion here, it just feels a bit staged. You know, in the book, King detailed Flag's complete meltdown. It just does not work here. With Jamie Sheridan continually talking in the microphone, it just feels like he's not talking to the crowd and just talking to us. And then the electric energy pulls from the corpses of, of Whitney Hogan and, and, and um, Julie. Uh, it transforms into the literal hand of God, complete with a Mother Abigail voiceover. Um, you know, I guess for a movie that's about the apocalypse, it's fitting that we're provided with an epically awful ending. From there on out, we see Tom try and get Stu home. Um, you know, and at one point, awful, awful 90s music uh, that sounds more appropriate in the background of a Viagra commercial play out as Nick shows Tommy how to heal Stu. And the ending draws out, and it would be easy for an audience member to check out, but, you know, there's enough tender scenes here that make it work. You know, Tom admitting that he does remember what Nick looks like, um, for example, is particularly heartbreaking, and it's a nice little touch. Then Stu and Tom make their way back, and when they arrive in Boulder, they're greeted by Stephen King himself. Stu and Franny reunite, and after a tease that the baby might not make it, we're given a happy ending complete with the ghost of Mother Abigail, and in just in case we forgot this was made in the 90s, and just in case we forgot exactly who has died, we are given an actual montage in memoriam of all of the dead characters. And then peace out, we're done with the stand. Um... So one thing I just want to share, um, I just wasn't sure if I talked about it in, in the review or not, but um, of the books itself, but I want to talk about the stand that takes place in Las Vegas um, because it's, it's very easy to say that nothing happens and our good guys don't do anything, and I don't think that that is true. All that they're asked to do is stand. They are... Yes, they don't outwit flag. They don't. They are not active, um, in the sense that they 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 con they there's a, a huge confrontation. There's not a conflict. But the title of this movie and the title of the book isn't the conflict. The title is the stand. All they had to do was stand against flag to show that they're standing up against flag, and that's it. They represent the good in humanity simply going and willing to sacrifice their lives in order to say, we will not stand with you. So for anyone that's disappointed from the, the act, from the, the, the lack of action, I get it, but I don't think that it's fair to really criticize the end that nothing happens or that our good guys don't do anything because they do what they're being asked, which is to stand. And then once they prove to Mother Abigail's God, then yes, Mother Abigail's God does intervene and say, okay, you know, I have tested you, you have passed this test, um, and now I will rid evil from this world. But what's great is that it isn't just Mother Abigail's God that's intervening, it's also, you know, when they stand, it's Flag's undoing. Like, and you watch it unfold. I st you know, Flag doesn't know how to... I mean, he, he has beaten down people. He has put the fear of himself in people. And all of his tricks aren't working on these particular characters. And he doesn't know what to do. So he just, he overcompensates a little bit. And in that overcompensation, 
it takes him down. But it's all because the good guys stood up to him. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I know that there might be some complaints that nothing happens in the end. And I disagree with that. So now it's time for the book versus movie. Um, so with uh, the the character of Stu, I'm actually going to go with Gary Sinise because it's Gary Sinise and whoever takes over this role is going to have to step out of the shadow of Gary Sinise. And I think that that's incredibly challenging because he embodies Stu Redman in a way that I think he, he elevates the character of Stu. He makes what could have been a very one-dimensional character fully realized. Um, you know, because Gary Sinise, he's able to channel a lot of intensity very minimally, and that is Stu Redman. So totally, it's Gary Sinise. Franny, um, I think that Molly Ringwald does a really good job, and I don't remember thinking that when I first saw it, but um, I have to go with the book, um, with, with Franny on that one. Harold, the book. In the book, he's so much more complex. Here, um, he's just a cartoon, so I, I have to go with, with the book. Glenn, I'm going to go with the movie. Ray Walston's fantastic in this role, um, so much that it it's... He has overshadowed my image of Glenn in the book. I don't know what I pictured Glenn looking like originally, but I can't picture anybody else but but Ray Walston, um, who was just able to deliver lines with such wit and warmth and weariness and cynicism, and he he just feels like a real person, um, and he makes Glenn feel just like he, he pops out of the screen. Larry, okay, guys, I, I've slammed Larry, and it's nothing against Adam Stork, who I think does a good job. It's the writing of this character that's a mess. Um, you know, I mean, the, the character of Larry is just less and less Larry, and just, it, it's more like Christopher from The Sopranos played Larry. And I don't mean Michael Imperioli, I mean, I mean Christopher, the character. I mean, what, what it comes down to is I think the answer to the question everyone keeps asking when they sing Baby Can You Dig Your Man, if that man is Larry, then the answer is decidedly no. Ralph, I'm just gonna go with the movie. Um, Nick, the book, um, nothing against Rob Lowe. I think Rob Lowe did a good job with his um, high-waisted pants, but I, I just, the, the character it's just not a character that is easy to translate into into film because we have to spend so much time exploring what it's like to be him and live in his his world um his deaf world where he's not able to communicate easily and that it just it's very very difficult to be able to convey that on screen so i have to go with the book on that one uh tom movie all i just i'm gonna get into that in a little bit but right now i want to talk about nadine so laura san Giacomo plays nadine pretty much crazy from the very beginning um and the problem is she just is not really able to convey the sensuality of the character nadine for larry is a siren right she's a seductress she's alluring in the movie she's tortured she's fragile her soul is in a constant state of breaking by merging the rita character it saddles the nadine character with a weak desperation you know remember in the book larry didn't like rita you know, so if that character stuck around, Larry would not have been drawn to her. There would not have been a conflict. And the Rita aspect of this Nadine, this repurposed Nadine, really brings the Nadine character down. Now, I understand that they went for, okay, the, the, the sensation that she is tortured because she of her dark destiny. But that's all that we get. The Nadine in the book is a lot more fully realized. We get this 
this person who has all these motherly instincts. She was a school teacher that takes, you know, the the Joe character under her wing and loves him. And so there's a heartbreaking scene where she leaves him for for um, Harold, and you know we we get you know glimpses of her past where she just wants to be loved by the people around her and you know she wants to be a normal person but she can't and that is not conveyed here we just get crazy nadine and it's, it's too bad mother abigail the book uh, the the chapter that king spends um giving us mother abigail's past in hemingford home really does wonders at making her a character now i i think that in the upcoming movie we all we don't need that we don't need that um and it's nothing against ruby d and it's nothing against this the um television version of this character but i would make the argument that if the question of her reality is a conflict in the movie that would work wonders and when they first arrive to hemingford home and we realize that she's actually a person i think that that would be a great moment in the movie so i don't need that backstory in hemingford home i don't need to check on her as a person before we actually realize that she is more than just a dream but i'm going to go with the, the character from the book lloyd i'm going to go with the book nothing against miguel ferrar i think he does a great job but i'm going to go with the book trash can man again i think that um uh uh, Matt Frewer does a wonderful job, but I just prefer Trash Can Man from from the book. I, I think that the cartoonishness of the the, the Matt Frewer character really makes parts of the movie very very um, worthwhile and worth watching. But just something about trash from the book. All right, Randall Flag. So let's talk about Jamie Sheridan, who is going to get overshadowed in the next couple of years when Matthew McConaughey steps into those cowboy boots. And really, I want to say what a shame because um, Jamie Sheridan did an incredible job as Randall Flagg. Um, it's, a, it's a character that for me personally had a lot of expectations and a lot of emotional investment wrapped up in that particular character because this is an incredible uh, literary character. And Jamie Sheridan did a phenomenal job at creating this... Um, was character that was uh, tempting to to some, uh, terrifying at other moments, ridiculously charismatic, um, and there, you know, I said that he hasn't really that this performance, not necessarily the performance, but this character, this 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 film, this television version of Randall Flagg hasn't really latched onto the public. Um, unconscious the way that you know Pennywise has the way that Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance does but at the same time you know there was recently a um, Marvel Comics adaptation of The Stand and Mike Perkins drew Randall Flagg with long hair and that's not in the book Flagg has short hair um, but I think that the Jamie Sheridan you know long-haired version of the character has kind of infused its way into our, our our pop culture now that said i don't want matthew mcconaughey to be strolling around with long hair um but i, I, I like the, the kind of short-haired uh randall flag but I, I i do think that there is some lasting um aspect of of this character and that's because of jamie sheridan so like i said i hope that jamie sheridan is given a moment to pass the torch to flag because i think to, to matthew mcconaughey because i think that he's earned it in the book there's a character that gives flag his you know his his documents um he gives flag a car um he kind of doctors flags identity for him 
And I think that that, if they were going to include that, that would be a great, just great meta moment for, for Jamie Sheridan. Um, great passing of the torch. I, I hope that something like that happens. I really would love for him to be, I mean, even if he plays like a character like the judge, um, because Jamie Sheridan can play warmth very, very well. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping um, that we see Jamie Sheridan again. Now, the movie MVP, that would be um, Bill Fagerbake, who could have played Tom so cartoonish, but he really gets the heart of Tom. Uh, it is a, a character that I think could just be horribly offensive if not handled the right way, and it's a character that I don't know if they're going to be able to pull off in 2015, but they managed to pull off in 1994 simply because they cast the right guy who, you know, played in the the television show Coach, um, you know, I mean, not the brightest bulb, but someone that had so much warmth and just, you know, just genuine kindness that it, I can completely understand why they cast him as Tom. And I'm glad that they did because he, more so than any other character, is the heart of this this movie in the books nick is the heart of of the story here it's it's tom and i completely understand why so he's our mvp i haven't given an mvp uh award to um any any performer in any uh book versus movie review but i have to give it here because he does such a great job um, so just final thoughts here i'm just looking ahead i know i've already talked about some hopes and dreams but i i've talked about changes um and looking into the future of the stand i hope there are changes you know i mean i i just discussed how you know the the characters make a stand and that's all that they're asked to do but you know if if josh boone wants to change things up i'm totally fine for that i i know that there was a a script that was written in which the trash can man floods um boulder which, I don't know. I, I mean, if there's a little bit of a war between Las Vegas and um, Boulder, eh, I wouldn't be surprised. And, you know, in, in the story of both the book and this film, the, the whole the spies plotline never pays off. It pays off in the sense that it reinforces the fact that the decisions made by the committee were the wrong decisions to make. That they weren't doing what they were supposed to do, which was simply to make a stand against Flag, And their machinations were not what you know, Mother Abigail's God wanted from them. So the fact that nothing happens with them makes sense within the book, but time is spent and it doesn't have the payoff that we expect. So I can see where people might have um, an issue with that. So maybe in the book or in, in the new movie, you have the spies pay off and come back with information um, or, you know, their death negatively affects the characters back in Boulder or something, you know, or what if Harold doesn't die? What if Harold um, makes it to Las Vegas and there's an encounter between Harold and the other characters and maybe we see the redemption of Harold or something? I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, if if they decide to change aspects of the story to to make the end a little bit more thrilling, I'm, to I'm fine with it because I have the book and, f you know, I, I, I have the, the poetic you know, sense that in the book, all I have to do is make a stand that, you know, the spies didn't work out because the committee was just not making the right decisions. I get it. And I have the book for that, but the movie should be something different. 
So that's it, everyone. That's all I've got for Mick Garris's adaptation of The Stand. Uh, please tune in next week as I launch into uh, Stephen King's uh, collection of novellas, Four Past Midnight. Um, the, the episodes will be broken down into um, little segments rather than just doing an entire episode devoted specifically to Four Past Midnight. So there will be a review for the Langoliers. There will be a review for the Langoliers TV movie. There will be a review for Secret Window, Secret Garden, a review for Secret Window, the, the movie, a review for the Library Policeman, and then a review for the Sun Dog. Um, and all of those will come out around the same time. So it won't be spread out over five or so weeks. It'll all come out with around the, the same week. I'll, I'll, I'll figure that out later. But... Um, Thanks, everyone. Um, if you haven't done so already, please feel free to write in at stephenkingcast.yahoo.com um, and uh, write a review on iTunes. That would really help me out, and uh, a subscription to, to iTunes would help me out as well. So um, thank you, everyone, and then I'll see you here next week, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King Cast. Yeah.